0: There are a great many things I would call you, Mr. Khan. Typical is not one of them.
1: Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Khan,
0: And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Brewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we share 25 of the world's best brewers' tips, tricks, and secrets – So, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas.
1: And I'm the guy known for making fun of that weird beer and strange ideas, as well as questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out.
0: (laughs) All right. (laughs) So, on today's episode, we're going to head into the pub, we're going to do our usual feedback, we're going to come into the library, we're going to talk a real quick funny uh, segment in the library cover a real quick piece of product announcement news in the brewery and then it's off to the lounge where we're going to spend some time talking with a homebrew shop owner of monrovia homebrew shop uh, roberto hernandez and the socal serviceros about well what it takes to be a homebrew club and why they've wanted to found a latino focused homebrew club in the city of los angeles so i think that's going to be fun where then we're going to of course close out with some questions some tips and tricks and something other than beer
1: that's right man whoa What a busy, busy show we got. So uh, let's take a quick break here so you can hear a message from some of the people who make this show possible. And we'll be right back with lots of beery fun and info. So stick around.
0: This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iodafor. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose
1: Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that will take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership.
0: And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support.
1: Hey, thanks for still being here. We are back, and uh, Drew has a little stuff to tell you about.
0: Well, yeah, if you didn't see it, last week's episode of The Brew Files is live. It's episode... Jeez, what is it? It's episode 18. 18, yeah. yeah. The, the Unstoppable IPA, where we talked to the two winners of the National Homebrew Competition's American IPA category, which, oddly enough, was sponsored by, well, a very intelligent podcast. So we're going to uh, go listen to that episode if you haven't, <laughs> because I think you learn a lot about their sort of tips and tricks about making what they envision to be the best IPA they can.
1: Yeah, it was pretty cool, man. Uh, I I just wish that we had uh, been able to try the beers.
0: Well, little things. At some point in time, maybe we'll teleport beers around. (laughs) All right. Now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click on the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is...
1: It is Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, which is helping fund care and treatment of pediatric cancer. And, uh, you know, that's that's good karma stuff, people. So... Go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and kick in whatever you can afford, and we'll get it over to Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, and uh, you can rest easy tonight knowing that you've done a really good thing.
0: There you go, and don't forget also other good things that you can do as you are listening to this on the very day that this episode goes live, September 13th, 2017 is the last day that you can actually get a discounted subscription to BYO Magazine. 50% off. That's that's like half off.
1: Yeah, uh, I was going to say, man, that's like a really good deal. And I, even, I don't have to worry about the math on that one.
0: Yeah, so you can go to our website, click on the BYO banner, get your subscription for half off. Remember, if you already have a current subscription, guess what? You just add another year to your subscription at half the price. So go click on the link. We get some of that money back. So you're helping to support the podcast by doing that. So remember, today, September 13th, 2017,
1: last chance. Last call, last call. Go do it. Help yourselves, help us, and uh, everything will be great. All right. Feedback. Feedback. Oh, man, us audio engineers hate that word, but I know that we have to say it.
0: Yeah, so real quick, we had a bunch of great uh, feedback from people last week about uh, reading their questions and answering their questions. Hey, you know what? Thank you, everybody, for sending in your questions. I thought that was a rather rad uh, Q&A show. What would you
1: think? Yeah, I thought, I thought it was great, man. I really enjoyed it a lot. I thought that there were some great questions and uh, maybe even a few great answers. But remember, people, that we can't answer questions unless you send them in. So uh, don't stop now. If you have questions, send them in to ExperimentalBrew.com, and uh, we will get answers out to you as we can. All right. So
0: other than the questions, which, by the way, thank you so much again. Wonderful show. I love doing those shows. Uh, We had one piece of feedback based on the last Brew Files episode where I actually made a comment about our theme song and the lack of ukulele. and It comes in from Adrian Jones uh, regarding the Brew Files theme, and he said, it's got to be the X-Files theme played on the Uke.
1: Well, yeah, you know, I agree with that, but... You know, I can't tell you how many hours I've spent trying to figure out an arrangement of the X-Files theme on the uke, and it just doesn't lend itself to that.
0: All right, boys and girls out there who are listening to this, if you are YouTube fanatics or if you know of sources of music online, I demand that you send us all the links that you have to Denny <laughs> at because there are plenty of examples of people doing the X-Files theme on ukulele out there. So have at it flood Denise inbox. Yes, Personally,
1: I, you know, I'd be more like into like a uh, a Jack Black Tenacious D kind of theme song, but uh, whatever. <laughs>
0: All right, this uh, this is not this is not the epic song, <laughs> no, is it?
1: Okay, enough of this screwing around. Uh, do we want to get out of here and head over to the pub for a beer? If you insist. All righty, then that's what we're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna head over to the experimental brewing pub, grab a beer, and uh, we'll be right back with the pub life. So stick around, please. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon High Desert Farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com hey we're back we are sitting here in the experimental brewing pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town usa having a couple beers and yours has a really funny name
0: yeah uh so mine is enthousamuzzy
1: okay you're gonna have to explain that one
0: all right so there is you know i've been obviously on a Rampage, try and hit all the breweries in the L.A. area, which it's L.A. That's a lot of breweries. And I've almost made my way through the list for L.A. County uh, proper. But the other day uh, I had some free time and I ran out all the way to Rancho Cucamonga, which I love to I say know, the man. name of <laughs> Rancho Cucamonga. And in Rancho, they actually have this sort of little neighborhood area where there's about within a couple of miles of each other, about four or five breweries. So it's kind of nice. And I went out there because there was one brewery that a friend of mine really recommended that I had to go see. And it's called Sour Cellars. Uh, and absolutely amazing. They are, they are doing some really great stuff. I'm, I'm going to get them on the show because it's way too much fun what they're doing. They're taking a real kind of traditional stance to it and a lot of experimentation as well. So one of their chief beers that they bottle is called Enthusamuzzy, which is a oak barrel aged golden cereal wine. Refermented with uh Tintacau and alicante uh, wine grapes, wow and <laughs> yeah, I mean it is bright, it is fizzy, it is sharp but without being harsh uh, it, he just has a real master's touch with this stuff
1: that's uh that's very interesting And where does the name enthusiamazy come from he actually
0: he names almost all of his beers after old Victorian slang huh. Really, and so si- sitting, yeah, sitting in the sitting in the brewery he has a dictionary of Victorian slang, and that's how he chooses the beer names.
1: So, do you have an idea what "enthusiasm" means, other than good beer?
0: Yes, it is a Victorian sarcastic reference to enthusiasm.
1: <laughs> you know what? I'm going to start using that enthusiasm. Yeah, really, man. I, I am so enthusiasmy about your clam chowder saison, and as you should be. <laughs> All righty. All right. What are you drinking? I am having here a good old Northwest style IPA from a brand new brewery here in Eugene. Well, I shouldn't say brand new. They've been around a year or so called cold fire run by brothers, Dan and Steven Hughes. They are making a wide variety of really, really excellent beers, uh, really interesting flavor combinations, nothing totally off the hook, like Enthusamuzzy, but extremely well-made beers, uh, perfectly balanced. There's that B word again. Uh, And this is, I mean, this is just my idea of a perfect Northwest style IPA. Uh, It even has citra hops in it, but used in a proportion with other hops. So I actually enjoy the citra this time around. So this is a beer that isn't going to be real widely available, but if you happen to be in the area and you see uh, anything by cold fire, Check it out, because I haven't had anything even approaching a mediocre beer from them yet. They have all been excellent.
0: I didn't think it was legal anymore for people to make a Northwest-style IPA or a West Coast-style IPA. I thought thought it all had to be funny.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know what, man? Here uh, in... The Northwest, we seem to have kind of come out the other side of that trend, and they're getting back to good old beer that doesn't taste like a, a milkshake with gravy in it.
0: Hey, some of those milkshake beers are pretty good, so sure, sure. uh It's all just I different. Gonna,
1: you know, everybody has their own opinions and their own tastes, and I encourage everybody to drink what they like and not drink what they don't like. How's that? I'll allow it. I'll <laughs> allow it. Okay, so uh, moving on to what's going on in the beer world. The American Homebrewers Association has just come out with version 2.0 of the BrewGuru app for your phone, iPad, and other devices. Uh, they made a, quite a few changes in it, huh?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, a lot of taking feedback from uh, users all around and actually really kind of focusing on usability, how it deals with you know showing you where deals are and alerting you location-wise, it's because the first, the first version of the application could be ri- relatively chatty. And so now everything is much cleaner. Your membership card, you know, that virtual membership card that everybody uses uh, to show off for your deals is right there, right in front. Uh, all the deals there near you come up immediately. So it's it's pretty cool. Uh, although I do have to, a bone to pick with them the fact that, you know, there's an extend membership button on it, which is kind of cool, right? You know, extend your membership from inside the app. But I'm a lifetime member, man. I
1: can't extend my membership. Well, don't click the damn button.
0: Well, boo. But no, <laughs> it, seriously. Seriously. The new, the new Guru app, completely redesigned, more content in there, uh, better functionality. And also, I think one of the other good things is a lot of people complain like, hey, you know, there aren't any deals near me. Well, now the app has the ability for you to be in a place and tag the place to say, hey, this place should have a deal. So so it, it will report back to the Brewers Association and the AHA and, and they can reach out to the brewery and say, hey, you guys want to have a deal? So that... We can make it So available. they
1: send out uh, Matt with his Enforcer baseball bat and... Uh...
0: Yes, and his tuxedo.
1: <laughs> Great. Whether or not you're an AHA member, uh, you might want to check this app out. It's pretty darn cool. You don't have to be a member to use it, although the features are limited if you're not. And if you are a member, you can just find out all kinds of interesting info and uh, probably save yourself some money, too. So check it out. Well, and don't,
0: and don't forget. I mean, if you're if you're not a member, you load up the the app. You can actually get a trial membership. I think it's like a week long. Yeah, right. So you you can you could whip out your phone and and immediately take advantage of a deal.
1: Yep. yep. It's available in the App Store for uh, iPhones and it's available in the Google Play Store for Android devices. Go get it. Check it out. See what you think. Let us know. More importantly, let the AHA know. This new version came about based on feedback on the original version, so uh, I'm sure that they would be happy to hear anything you have to say about the new version also. Indeed. And now there's a topic near and dear to your heart.
0: Yeah, I don't think it gets much dearer, near and dearer to my heart. Uh, it's about my mom. Yes, It's not Mother's Day, but I thought it was kind of cool. My mom is a teacher in Florida. She has had a habit of adopting... Uh, sort of troubled football players, you know, guys who are really talented at football in our high school uh, who have problems with their grades and their academics so they, they won't get the chance to go to college. And for a lot of these guys, this is going to be their primary shot to actually, like, you know, get to college and make something, you know, bigger and better for their family. She's worked for years mentoring high school football students to get them college ready. And there have been a number of NFL players who have been out there who my mom has done this for. And so one of the most recent one is a kid who went to our, went to our high school, a guy by the name of Martez Ivey, who plays offensive tackle for the Florida Gators, and is widely reputed to go to be a top draft pick. But Tez needed help to get into college, and my mom worked with him for like eighteen months, was his English teacher and his tutor after school. And got his grades up and got him to be able to qualify academically to go to UF. So actually this past weekend, Tez had nominated my mom for the college football uh, extra yards for teachers program, which is a way to recognize teachers' uh, you know, activities and helping college football players and whatnot. And so her school gets some extra money, and uh, she was featured along with Tez uh, just prior to the uh, Florida, uh, Florida-Michigan game, uh, actually online. And on uh, the SEC network, uh, so rather cool to see that happening for my mom because hey. she's worked for years to help uh, help students. Very
1: cool, man. Give her my congratulations, would you?
0: Yeah, thanks, mom.
1: <laughs> yeah, and uh, to tie that into everything, uh, she probably drinks a beer once in a while too, right?
0: It, she's more of a cider fan, but I've, it, we've actually gotten her to find saisons that she. All likes. right, there you if
1: go. I, So, uh, the other thing we want to talk about is uh, a new book coming out from Scott Janish. And you guys know that we have uh, talked about Scott quite a few times. He's done a lot of great research, especially into hops. He's opening up a new brewery with uh, Michael Tonsmeyer. And Scott has a new book coming out called The New IPA. And let me tell you, if you want info about hops, you would be hard-pressed to find a better book to check out, uh, at least according to the pre-publication write-ups we've seen.
0: Yeah, well, and of course, it makes uh, perfect sense now why he's been having all these articles about about hops and dry hopping and, and hop trials. Hmm. Research.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's going to be a great way to collect uh, all of the knowledge that he has g- all of the knowledge that he's garnered from doing all of his experiments and test brews and stuff like that—I'm uh, actually looking forward to this book coming out. And I'm not a huge book reader anymore because I know everything about brewing, right? So what's the point? Exactly. <laughs> so humble. So so. Humbug. Yeah, right. No, no,
0: no. Right, but again, but again, you can you can find details about that at scottjanish.com. Uh, the book's not due out for a little while yet, so. Keep, uh, keep watching, we'll let you know when it's Yeah, it right,
1: we certainly will, uh, and uh, one of us will read it, and we'll do a review, uh, and let me just say that what is really true is the old saying from Jethro Gump, the more I know about beer, the more I know I need to know more about beer. That's, that's actually my attitude.
0: Uh, so, breaking out Jethro Gump, I mean, that's... I think for the modern homebrew crowd, that's a little bit of an old school. Yeah,
1: that's right. And it's time that these kids learn their history, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Off my lawn, old man. (laughs) All
1: right. couple more things. Drew, take it.
0: All right. Well, so, you know, we usually will bag on uh, ABI around here. We're not huge fans of the brewery and their business practices. Uh, Reasons. But uh, obviously, of course, right now, Houston is recovering from Hurricane Harvey. And as we're recording this, Florida is directly in the strike path of Hurricane Irma. So it is hurricane season in full force, and it's time for AB to do what they usually do and what a lot of the major breweries do, uh, which has been that AB uh, released cans of water that they built up as an emergency supply and took them into Houston so that people could actually have water to drink. Uh, it's a very special property that uh, breweries have. I know a couple of craft breweries in Florida are doing the same thing, offering you know water Phillips to anybody who can bring in a container. Uh, so it's kind of nice to see, and it's a good piece of corporate citizenship. I know there are a lot of people who are out there sort of dismissing it as like, oh, it's a marketing PR move. You yeah, know what?
1: I don't so care. what?
0: It's still a good thing yeah, to Yeah,
1: right. That's it, man. You know, let's. Uh, when someone does something that deserves criticism, we'll criticize them. And when they do something that deserves praise, we'll praise them. And in this case, man, uh, AB, thank you very much for doing this. You really rock and to those of you who are making jokes about, oh, it's just Bud Light, come on, be cool.
0: Well, I mean, look, and, and like we said, we know Miller does this, all the big breweries yeah. do this, and, you know, it's just good to see, and besides, let's face it, the West is on fire, the South is being hit by hurricanes, uh, who knows what's going on, so it's always good to have any help wherever it That's comes That's right. You. All right, and then you want to talk You want to talk the unfortunate piece of news for us this week?
1: Yeah, I, I will. Um... One of our favorite places in Portland, Oregon has closed down. That's the uh, the Commons Brewery. Uh if you remember what was it, about a year or so ago, uh we were up there I mean, I guess it was last October maybe. We stopped by and we yeah. talked to Sean Burke, the brewer at the Commons, drank a bunch of delicious beers there. Uh, innovative and really well made. Well they got the
0: Yeah, and and that was in uh that was twenty one episodes ago in
1: episode twenty eight. Oh, wow. <laughs> How time flies. Mm-hmm. At any rate, they kind of got hit with the classic cash flow problem. Uh, you know, it was uh, a situation where the money was not coming in as fast as it was going out. They had bought the building they were in, and they had kind of counted on the continued growth of the craft beer industry and their own business. And as we've talked about many, many times, things seem to be leveling off a bit these days. And they were just not able to keep up with their expenses. uh, It's a real shame. They say that they're going to be back. They've been around for a while, started from a very small uh, kind of homebrew beginning. And I, Mm -hmm. I would love to see them come back. Uh, I guess the only upside in the whole thing is that uh, since they own the building, they're going to be leasing it out and Modern Times will be opening up a facility there uh, doing both beer and coffee, it appears. huh?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's good in some way that the the brewery will still remain active uh, and be a thing and Modern Times will be able to open up really freaking quick. And, of course, the downside is that we lose a very uncommon brewery for brew with the name of the commons because I just really dug what they were doing for their beer, and I dug that they were kind of sticking to their guns of not trying to do the typical thing and you know having those nice table-strength saisons that they had, along with a bunch of other things. And I know that uh, what I think uh, Sean is now brewing over at Fathead's, right. And so, if you want to find his beer, you can you, you can follow him there. But yeah, I mean, we'll we'll keep the keep the eyes open to see what's going to be next for the commons, and see how they're going to come back
1: if they do. Yeah, right. You know, and one thing that a lot of people have said was that their prices were too cheap, and you know, from the from a consumer's point of view, you know, that's a very very desirable thing to be able to get really good beer really inexpensively. But on the other hand, if it means you can't make enough money to stay in business, then you've got to change that business model somehow. Yep. Um, yep. All right. More beer. Let's That's talk. That's right. More beer. Less talk. We're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to be heading over to the library for a quick little talk about goldfish. And I don't mean the snack crackers. Stick around.
0: Wait, I want some snack crackers.
1: When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Hey, we're back. We're over here in the library, sitting here, looking through all these stacks of books. And Drew is munching on some goldfish.
0: Mm, crunchy. <laughs> Shh. All right. So fun little thing, just real quick. It came out, uh, I think last month, there was a study that was released from the Universities of Oslo and uh, Liverpool about how Some of the wild cousins of goldfish actually survive, and they survive using alcohol. So, if you've ever had a kid or you've ever been a kid and you've ever had the goldfish experience, you know that, you know, at least until modern times when people started to realize, wait, you know, leaving a fish in a tiny little bowl is a bad idea, goldfish were kind of hardy little pets right? And they didn't seem to need a lot of care and they, their water certainly wasn't being reoxygenated all the time. And I mean, nowadays you go to the pet store and you go to buy a fish and it's like, okay, here you go, buy a fish tank with this water pump and these filters and these chemicals. And by the way, don't forget to do this and that and the other, they'll die if you don't. Well, scientists decided, okay, well, let's go and take a look at what happens because obviously there are lots of fish who live in ponds and the ponds in the Northern part of the world freeze over for a good portion of the year. So how do these fish survive? And it turns out they survive by... Well, effectively, they they convert lactic acid, which is being produced in their bodies uh, in an anaerobic environment, right? So without oxygen, lactic acid is, uh, is produced. That builds up, and that buildup is actually dangerous. And so what some of these... Uh, I think they're a, a variety of carp uh, who are cousins to goldfish. And they... Do this sort of thing where the lactic acid gets broken down and converted into ethanol, and then flushed out across the gills, so that the lactic acid doesn't build up inside the body. And the meanwhile, some of the uh, some of the other stuff is that they have a second set of proteins that are going on inside their bodies that allow them to do a different form of energy consumption. Yeah, you know, during these periods of time when they don't get a lot of oxygen. So it turns out that the the fish are producing enough alcohol and getting enough blood alcohol going that they get up to the level of where drunk driving starts in terms of their blood alcohol concentration. But they use that to survive. Man, but then come again, this, think this of it,
1: sounds like this could be handy for you.
0: I know, right? Uh, but I mean, uh, look, I mean, the problem is I think this explains some of the drinking habits up in, you know, wintry farms <laughs> i think humans 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 are trying to mimic their goldfish
1: <laughs> yeah right you know when uh when you started off talking about if you've ever been a parent uh then i thought you were going to talk about how useful it would be to be able to produce your own alcohol
0: we, well we already do that <laughs> um
1: <clears throat> yeah it, it is pretty cool uh what evolution can come up with
0: huh yeah nifty little tricks <laughs> but well, there there you go there's your, your quick hit at the library. Just something fun. Your goldfish are drunker than you are. <laughs>
1: well, we don't know who's listening to this. So let's say goldfish may be drunker than you are. How's that?
0: There you go. And in the meanwhile, goldfish crackers are still tasty, is ever. it? That's
1: right. Okie dokie. We're going to take a quick break here while we stroll over to the brewery. And when we come back, we're going to tell you about a new product coming out that you might want to check out if you haven't already. Stick around. We'll be right back. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chilaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chilaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaca you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chilaca wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold.
0: Well, hey, welcome to the brewery. It's This is the the area of the house where we talk about, well, you know, oddly enough, brewing stuff. So uh, if you've listened in in times past, you know that Denny and I have been fans of playing around with some different techniques and different uh, new ingredients and new processes. And one of those that we got a lot of attention for earlier this year was our experiments with tan B. But the problem was is that if you wanted your own tan B, you either needed to have a secret source or be willing to order it from Australia.
1: Yes, but. and that is about to come to an end. Our good friends and sponsors, Brewcraft, are going to be carrying tan Tanby starting pretty soon now, so that your local homebrew shop, assuming they do business with Brewcraft, can order it from them, and you can get it in homebrew-sized amounts. Previously, it had been out there on the market uh, in the U.S., but you had to at least buy a pound or more in order to get any, and... Uh, yeah, you know, you don't need much of this stuff, so a pound would last you about five lifetimes. Uh, but uh, we'll let you know once it's actually in the chain. But Brewcraft has uh, done a deal with Ajinomoto, and uh, they are sourcing the Brutan B in bulk and repackaging it for homebrewers so it'll be available. Now, as Drew mentioned, uh, this was a kind of a controversial subject when we did it before. A lot of people didn't uh, care for my comments and uh, my my praise for Brutan. Uh, Yeah, I admit that some of that may not have been uh, scientifically and objectively based, but it is subjectively based in the fact that I have now done many, many brews with it, and I won't make a beer without it. I think that it extends the life of the beer in terms of keeping a a nice fresh flavor. It aids in the clarity of the beer. And I'm really happy that it's going to be out on the market now so that other people can try it and we can kind of see what kind of consensus we get from people.
0: Yep. And, and don't forget, I mean, I don't think we ever announced, it, but we are going to have some more Brutan experiment results coming up here in short order. So stay tuned and be ready.
1: One of the things that Brutan supposedly does really well, like I said, is extend the life of your beer. So we have had people brew beers with and without Brutan, and they've been aging them for a few months. And so we're going to see if people can tell the difference, and if Brutan really made a difference in these beers. And whether they think so or not, I do. So I'm going to keep using it. Meaner, meaner. Onto the lounge. Onto the lounge. Okay. We're going to wander over to the lounge and we're going to sit down and listen to an interview with the owner of the Monrovia Homebrew Shop and the SoCal Serviceros. Stick around for that because we're going to be right back yeast has been producing premium liquid yeast for over thirty years and continues to provide homebrewers with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals. The third quarter private collection emulates the rich traditions and characteristics of Belgian style beers from Flanders to florinville thirty seven thirty nine Flanders gold nail. 3789 Trappist style blend and 3822 Belgian dark ale are worthy choices for creating the diverse styles of Belgium this summer. And congratulations to the winners of the Y Yeast Experimental Brewing Belgian Summer Contest Jordan Nudsen, Nikki Forster, and Chris Kepler. You can find their winning recipes at YEastLab.com and ExperimentalBrew.com. So go get those Y Yeast seasonal yeasts and brew your own winners. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Okay, we're back and we are doing a lot of wandering around the house today because now we're over in the lounge to listen to an interview that Drew did with a guy at a homebrew shop and the SoCal Service Arrows.
0: Yeah, so real quick, these are actually two separate interviews. Both of these happened at the Monrovia homebrew shop, which is operated by Roberto Hernandez. Uh, Roberto sat down with me and... We talked a little bit about the challenges of operating a homebrew shop and what he likes about it, and you know, sort of just the modern environment, and also being located right around the corner from a brewery, and what that does for you. They yeah. literally are right around the corner from a brewery, the thirty second walk. Uh, and then I was there at Monrovia Homebrew Shop because it was a brew day for the SoCal Service Arrows, and you know, wanted to actually kind of go meet the club. They actually have gotten some really good press recently because, well, you know, it, they do have a unique take on being homebrewers you know you think about los angeles where i live los angeles is heavily latino and you look around a lot of the homebrew clubs and a lot of the homebrew clubs here in la still feel very much like i could be in the midwest and so these guys actually went and founded a homebrew club that's sort of a meta homebrew club it covers most of los angeles and some of the members are members of other homebrew clubs as well and i sat down and i talked with uh, ray ricky rivera and uh, luis martinez Both members of the club, uh, both of them who have brewery projects in flight, because, of course, everybody does. And talk to them about the challenges of being Latino, being a Latino homebrewer, you know, and kind of trying to crack into some of the the natural click formations that happen with homebrew clubs to start with. And, you know, really sort of, you know, what they see as the power of, you know, having a Latino based homebrew club.
1: Okay, so with that background info, uh, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving. Sit back and listen to these interviews. There's uh, some pretty cool stuff here.
0: All right, so I am sitting here in the, well, the back room of the homebrew shop here in Monrovia, the Monrovia Homebrew Shop, and I'm sitting here talking with Roberto Hernandez. Roberto, say hello to everybody.
2: Uh, Hello out there, uh, brewing world.
0: (laughs) All right, and we have a couple things that we're drinking. I'm drinking some grapefruit mead right now, which has got that... Really strong uh, grapefruit pithy taste to it, which is really kind of awesome. nice little change of pace from uh, a lot of sweet honey flavors. And, Roberto, what are you drinking?
2: I am actually sipping on uh, agave weed. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's actually from our neighboring uh, brewery, Pacific Plate, who is actually on the next driveway.
0: Yeah, you you guys are literally a two-minute walk apart.
2: Yeah, we're actually in the same complex. Um, So you can literally park on one and go to the other like very, very easily. That never happens. Never. <laughs> Alright. So, Roberta, when did you open up the homebrew shop? Um, so, actually, one of the co-owners is actually Stephen Cardenas, who actually is also a co-owner and brewer at Pacific Plate.
0: Ah, so there is even more of a deep relationship here.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, m- me and his wife actually went to high school together, too. Oh. Uh, yeah, so... Um, They opened up, and about a year later, we started talking uh, just back and forth. And it just seemed kind of like a neat idea. And then we actually did a little bit of our own uh, research Mm -hmm. into it, and there actually seemed to be a gap. So if we were to look at Eagle Rock, um, and then we would look at Willing Hills, and look at Long Beach, and Culver City, there there was kind of a trend Mm -hmm. of what the homebrew shop kind of with support and between uh eagle rock and then going all the way to san dimas or even closer or farther to riverside um, we noticed that there's this giant gap in the middle and we're like well there's a giant gap in the middle that's not filled for brewers and mm-hmm. obviously there has to be some
0: brewers there right and for people who aren't from la i mean like so eagle rock to riverside where the more beer location is i mean that's uh, fairly
2: what like 25 miles so it's Closer to 30 because the bubble is actually 15-mile radius per homebrew shop in Los Angeles. Right. And there's so, a gap.
0: Yeah, so 30, uh, 30 miles, which in L.A. can be anywhere from 30 minutes to the rest of your life.
2: <laughs> yes, depending on, uh, on traffic, even on the weekends.
0: Yeah. Oh, no, I've, I've run into traffic jams on the weekend in L.A. and gone, where are you people going? Why are you in my way? So all right, so you identified a cat, but how did you get how did you get into the home world there? like
2: Well, um me and my uh friends uh started uh drinking fairly uh, close to the allowable age and in that time there was kind of like a semi Everybody's
0: legal on the podcast.
2: <laughs> semi uh, um Um, craft uh, uh, especially via social media and beer trading Mm -hmm. so we were starting to drink and then the beer trading was happening so we started beer trading but that got really really expensive Yeah. so after that, we're like, well, we could just make beer. And then we started homebrewing. And then after that, um, uh, Steve opened up his brewery, and then we started talking. And it kind of just uh, naturally evolved from there to, like, hey, we should open up a homebrew shop in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> like Because, like, there's just nothing here.
0: <laughs> well, okay, yeah. And so the here is, again, we're in Monrovia, which is one of the foothill cities which are kind of a, a suburb of L.A. You know? Yes. and. I mean, we say it's city. It is its own city, but it really is part of the whole L.A. megapolis. It's, you know, I think if somebody said, oh, I'm from Monrovia, everybody would also treat that as saying the same thing as, I'm from L.A., just a different part. But, yeah, we are up here in what was really kind of one of the original suburbs of L.A., but is now very much part of the, the city still as a thing. And, I mean, of course, when you guys opened up, uh, so you got started homebrewing when? What year? Uh, about four years ago. So four years ago. And then, what was it like, this shop's been open three? It's
2: opened up two, and we're two. going on to our third year now. Okay.
0: So you had two years of experience. You opened up the shop. Obviously, you had the brewery next door to give you some some helping hand and some experience there. But, you know, it, it seems kind of weird because when we're talking about as a larger part of the homebrew community, is a lot of the stuff that's out there about the retail market is that, so everybody kind of like in the craft beer world expanding 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 lots of new homebrew stores Everybody was kind of experienced some good success for a while and then now suddenly we're seeing a contraction hit right you know so a lot of retailers are finding the market to become more challenging are you are you finding the same thing here since you have that sort of wide buffer zone
2: um you know it is la mm-hmm. the market i would say from what the other parts of the country might see is a little different um not only um, the people, but I mean, LA has been missing the beer, uh, craft beer breweries. Um, and it's kind of still growing. Mm-hmm. I haven't
0: seen, Hey, we're at 60 now.
2: Yeah. And uh, I mean, five, even three years ago, we we're like half of that. Like oh, no,
0: three years ago, I think we were still under 20. Yeah.
2: Like it's ridiculous. So, um, we have been seeing growth and even now, um, that's usually summer's a little more, uh, slower for, uh, Homebrew shops just because of temperature what control. Nobody
0: wants to. Nobody wants to ruin the heat.
2: That and then uh, family vacation, kids are out of school, so it's very hard uh, for the de- demographic that it likes to brew uh, to be more active. But we've been okay. Um, obviously, um, I I don't know what to say to what our success, particularly of keeping it going, has been. But um, I, I think that a lot of it has to do with customer service because it's one of those things where you just like. I do a lot of online shopping too. Mm-hmm. You can ask a question, you can have a respond in 10 minutes, or you can have it in five days. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can call us, email us, come down and walk you through it. And I think a lot of it has been the customer service, why some of our customers actually like come back and stay kind of more faithful because uh, we're pretty close to uh, Morbier, which is one of the mm-hmm. larger distributors now in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and people can easily take a weekend and drive out there, but you know, uh, they just stay here and they come here. So I, I, I really would say mostly the customer service really kinda like one of the main things, especially um with Steven and I, um and him being professional brewing that we do have a lot of uh helping hands with um some home brewers and even um I mean we had like um a couple of people who've gotten uh who've gone professional come here and that helping hand I guess and customer service really helps out. So I mean I it just good products and customer service really makes almost every success story and I think the products are out there, and the distributors are very easily accessible for us, and we just got to provide the other half and mm-hmm. I think that's what really been helping us and the fact that Los Angeles was a little late, so mm-hmm. it's still growing, so there's still room, and then we just were in an area that wasn't actually um, being serviced. so I think that's our success personally, I think maybe mm-hmm.
0: well and I mean and I mean this is not this is not the largest number shop I've ever been in, right, but I mean, large doesn't equate to quality. I mean, you guys have, you know, a lot of sort of the products I would expect. Yeah, you, know, you have actually, you know, for a small shop, you have a, a very nice selection of grain there all the way down to, like, you know, some nice Red X and, and other pieces in there. And, you know, obviously also some root craft stuff, although we've talked about some of the books that you're not carrying.
2: Yeah, you know, um, thank you for bringing that to my attention. And I think <laughs> next time you're around, you might be surprised to find that uh, we might be carrying more of uh, the books you're looking for.
0: Mm. Yes, sir. Homebrew shops, business trips. Well, now, so let's talk a little bit about how does the relationship between you and your neighboring brewery, which is Pacific Plate, I don't think we've actually said. It's Pacific Plate Brewing Company here in Monrovia, California. And, like, and no, literally, you walk out the door of the homebrew shop, you hang a right, go you know 100 feet, hang a left, go down the end of the building, hang another left, and boom, first door. Right?
2: It's basically a U turn. You just make a U turn around and a one drive into the other in the same complex and right there. Yep.
0: Yeah, you don't have to get to near near, this, near the main street. So, but how does that relationship wor- work between you guys now? Because obviously you have the same, you know, same co ownership uh, piece in, involved. But what's the day to day operation like?
2: Um, well, we. Totally work out as individual businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been pretty good about that. There hasn't been any um OSAP or anything. It's been really, really good. Um, as far as how we go around business, um, I think it's like a... I forget that word. We're like, you know, there's a shark and something lives under it. Oh, it's, it's a
0: symbiotic relationship?
2: Bingo. It, uh, it kind of works out kind of like a symbiotic relationship. Like, um, we don't go too much, but uh, um, it just works out nice. Like, hey... Need fifty pounds of this. Don't worry, put it on your tab. And and um, yeah, it's just it's it's really good. And as far as the crowd, um, it's good because we're open and there's a lot of brewers who we've been here for almost. We're going on third year, and it's the first time. And they never visited the brewery, and they never visited the homebrew shop. But you know, once in a while, it's like we our hours are a little different from other shops. So when people are brewing, they break stuff like Mm -hmm. your hydrometer. Um that never happens. You know, you, you go and you, you do a real quick Google search, you haven't done it in a while, and oh my god, there's and like, oh by the way, there's this place on the street, uh, mm-hmm. next next door. Like, oh, that's awesome. And then it goes vice versa the same way. Like they come in, like, oh, you know, I, I saw an event going on, I came here. It's like I'm a brewer by the way. It's like, oh really, there's the homebrew shop on the next driveway. It's like, oh great, you know, let me go check it out. And it's kind of been working out pretty good. Um it, it it's, it's it's nice. Uh we get a good crowd and we've been able to build up um, a a good community because there's a lot of uh, uh, of people in the area that that probably didn't that would go outside of Monrovia to go get mm-hmm. beer and now it's like well I'm a brewer and instead of going there I have a brewery here and a home shop and then it brings our small community a little bit closer together which is really great. I was gonna say yeah how big is Monrovia? It's not that big I would say because I mean you could go like five minutes and and you hit this other city, and then you can go five minutes. It's not that big, but we get a lot of uh, of, of us here, uh, the people in the city, really close. So it's, it's good. Like, it's good well, stuff.
0: Well, now, do you get, do you ever get uh, the traffic that would say, like, somebody goes over to Pacific Plate, and they go, and they have all those beers, and they're like, hey, hey this beer thing's really interesting, or, I really like that. And then one of the bartenders or one of the owners over there says, oh, hey, by the way, there's a homebrew shop over over next door. You know, go, You can go make your own beer. You can go try that. Does that ever happen?
2: You know, um, yeah, we actually have had a couple of customers that have gone that way. And um, it's been great. And they've been staying like with us as uh, we, run, we host a couple of clubs here and there. And, uh, yeah, uh, it, it, it does happen. So it is a like a, like that relationship you said earlier.
0: Symbiotic, like a shark in a remora. Exactly. Only slightly less teeth. <laughs> <laughs> what are some challenges that, you've, that you face as a guy who's running a homebrew shop that I think a lot of homebrewers, the people who are coming into the homebrew shop, don't necessarily
2: realize? Um, challenges. Well, I mean, just as a general business, there's like just a small business running mm-hmm. at the front and everything. But um, most people are, are nice about it. But I, I guess it would be pricing in online stores. That's that's really the only I think mm-hmm. the biggest challenge, um, just because it's so easy to order through Amazon or any other online retailer and free shipping. Mm-hmm. And um, when they come in here, they 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 kind of like, well, it's kind of a little bit more expensive. And some of these um, uh, manufacturers have. Set prices and only when volume. So really, you mm-hmm. can only get more, uh more return with more volume. But right. when a small business, you, you you really don't have that much capital to really mm-hmm. invest, and and you can't do that in multiple items. To just, you know, if you have one or two customers, that well, I mean,
0: that's that's why like you know, Blickman prices, for instance, are always the same. You know, pretty much anywhere that you go is because. There are certain thresholds you have to get over, and and Blickman has a certain charge, and it's nothing against Blickman. I mean, that's just that's part of the way that business works, and it's really hard for small homebrew shops or small retailers to get over.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and then and then um, besides that, you know, there's a uh, the I, I personally like for I think the most value that a small business like us provides is really for the beginner brewers. A lot of it, mm-hmm. because I mean, when I started brewing that help that you get from talking to someone face to face Mm -hmm. that's where the value comes in but the challenge is that that we must keep certain prices certain ways to help pay for the retail space which a lot of online warehouses don't have to do Um, I think that's the biggest challenge other than that because like a lot of brewers are pretty nice i don't know what mm-hmm. what is it about the community but so far i've just had nice customers and you know that's i think that that's the biggest issue but a lot of uh, the people who are more understanding uh if we can match it and they'll wait on us they'll be like oh you know it's okay i'll wait a week and i'll just order for you guys mm-hmm. but i think that's that's probably the only thing uh obviously there are some brewers who kind of just kind of walk away but I think that's that's it. the challenging, I mean, I, I don't know if it's just us, this area, but they're mostly kinda nice and it kinda works out well uh, so far. Well I mean you
0: guys you guys do have the benefit of like what you're talking about, like you're you're in a hole, you know, in terms of availability and service, right? You're not trying to open up in the middle of the city, you're still, you know, relatively far enough away from downtown LA and, and the west side that, that your rents are gonna be lower. So that, that helps. But, yeah, you're also not in a space that's being radically well-served. But, I mean, I think, to me, I think the big point is to really stress forward to people that, you know, it's super, super easy to sit there on your computer at, you know, 1030 at night and go and drop a bunch of grain into into a website and click ship and wait for that to come, right? But at the same time, I mean... Earlier today, while we were here, you had one customer that you were serving. You were helping him find a couple things in the shop. You stepped away for a moment to to go talk to the club that's meeting outside, which we'll talk to in short uh, short order. And he came, oh, no, no, I've got to go because I'm in the middle of a mash and I didn't have these ingredients. And you're like, oh, okay. And that's exactly what the local homebrew shop can do that an Amazon or even even our good friends at More Beer or any of the, the other mail-order places can't do for you is like... Hey! Oh, I messed up, and I need this now.
2: Yeah, you know, and 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 um, it really shows. And I've, when before running opening the shop, like multiple multiple times has that happened to me, where it's like, okay, you do this while I run to the shop really really quick. Just follow these directions, and just wait for me, and just stop if you get there before I get here. <laughs> I we gotta have this wrong uh, hop edition scheduling. Mm-hmm. You break a hydrometer. You know, little things like that sometimes make a big difference. But yeah, I mean, it's I really think that it's the having it when you need it, um, a space. Uh, for example, we have here where we host classes, um, fundraisers, and we host clubs. And also, um, just feedback and customer service, like going back through beers. Mm-hmm. I mean, that 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 really is something that can't be translated. Which I think that's what helps. Our particular market, in general, I think, uh, which which I, I thank all the brewers for uh, supporting, which is great.
0: Which begs a follow up question of, so what do you do
2: when a homebrewer comes into you and they bring you a bad beer? Well, uh, I've never turned any brewer, uh, even e- I'm I'm skeptical on the distill stuff because there are some people who have brought distill stuff. Um,
0: and no nope, nope. That is not legal here in the United States. Only legal in, in New Zealand, and only legal here in California. If you're distilling for fuel alcohol. Thank you.
2: Yeah, so this, <laughs> she, they brought me a perfume. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: so it's essential oil.
2: Yeah, but 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 um yeah um I'm actually a, a BJCP judge, mm-hmm. and um I've actually encouraged people to bring them, even if they're bad, because um if you don't know what you did that was bad well Mm -hmm. we can help you and uh well if
0: you don't know what you did was bad you can never fix it so
2: yeah you you get you kind of have to uh um um, come down and see what 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 are your what could have happened you know Mm -hmm. and and uh and and i I, and there hasn't been some bad stuff yeah i wouldn't say there there's some stuff there i smell it and i have to sip on it to see what kind of infection it was (laughs) But um, yeah, yeah, it's great, and that's why I always always encourage people to enter competitions, even if they don't mm-hmm. do it for the ribbons mm-hmm. or anything else. Um, getting uh, feedback from the BJCP score sheets is great for any brewer, beginner or expert. It really helps you dial in your your your, your brewing uh, technique.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and of course, getting away from your friends who're like, "Dude, this beer is awesome," because you're giving it to, giving it to me for free, and it's <laughs>
2: beer. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> All right, so now you also mentioned you host a couple of clubs, you host a couple of events. Uh, can you give a couple of details for that? Because, I mean, I think those are important for homebrew shops in terms of, like, keeping going and and, and keeping up even in down retail times.
2: Yeah, so um, when I started brewing, I started um, going to Pacific Gravity And I think back then they were being hosted in Culver City before they changed locations. Mm -hmm. I'm not too sure. But um, then I went to another homebrew club, Strand Brewers, out. And they used to be hosted at another homebrew shop, uh, South Bay Brewing Supplies. Mm -hmm. And um, from just going through it and experiencing uh, how other words, I don't know what the other words to say, but it's kind of neat and cool where we go there, the shop's closed, we mm-hmm. talk to the, the, the owner, uh, go to ingredients, the whole set. And being so close to ingredients, be able to pull something on the shelf, uh, do chemistry, whatever we need for that, just that brief moment, um, it was really good. And it was a lot of, um, even though there wasn't a lot of, sh- of maybe even uh, shopping, like it's a good experience for the brewers, especially the brewers in that community. It gives them a place to meet and meet other people. So then... Um, When uh, we opened up, uh, what we actually started was just with a random kind of everyone invited Mm -hmm. homebrew kind of meeting, like kind of like more on the bottle share side of homebrew. And we did that for a whole year. And then the same people started um, coming. And then we even had people who don't brew who came for a whole year.
0: Oh, yeah, I know those people.
2: And then, so then after a year, they started brewing. And then all these uh, people that are kind of local in our community started in competitions and they started winning. But there's usually affiliation, club affiliations. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, like, you know what? We held this for a whole year. 99% of it's homebrew. Uh, let's do something and let's, let's collaborate. And, and we started just, and then, um, so we hold one club here monthly, uh, the Alchemist, mm-hmm. uh, which is me monthly. It's mostly homebrew. We do feedback and we and do the competitions. And now uh, once in a while, we actually have a new homebrew club called SoCal Cerveceros. Um They don't have a local place where they actually... Um, Meet monthly, Mm -hmm. but every once in a while we'll we'll meet. And then um, today's event, we had an extract with an all green batch, and we had some uh, food barbecue, and then we had a bunch of brewers come in with their uh, homebrew. So we like to do this because it brings in new brewers, local brewers, uh, other types of brewers, and I'll let um, um, uh, Ray, our vice president, talk more about that. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, in general it really keeps not only the beer community, but just the citywide community of people who are there, like... You know when the new bars opening up, uh, pushing city to allow it. Um, I mean, something awesome that's happening here is called a uh, Taste of Monrovia that's mm-hmm. happening in the month, and we've never had that before. Which pretty much going to be uh, a small uh, craft beer festival with a new brewer opening up with mm-hmm. a Pacific Plate, and they've never had that before. And obviously, it's co- uh, because of the community and you know a lot of the home brewers also push because, as a home brewer, just because I home brew. Twenty gallons every other month mm-hmm. doesn't mean I don't buy beer. Right. I buy. I, I thought I would stop buying beer. I buy the same amount of beer. I still yeah, do.
0: Ev- everybody thinks that.
2: <laughs> yeah, it doesn't actually change that in the end. But um, yeah, so it just gives a a, a place for brewers to meet, uh, for still like a, a little community happening, and and I think it, it's great. Yeah, that's that's why we do it.
0: Well, good. All right. So, any last thoughts before before we walk away from the conversation? Anything that you want people to know about? what you do, where to find you, anything else?
2: Well, if you're in this in uh, Los Angeles or the outskirts of Los Angeles or anywhere in your, near the 605, uh, come down, check us out. Uh, we have a brewery next door. Uh, we host uh, monthly meetings. And, uh, yeah, we're on.
0: Yeah, and, yes, for everybody who just heard that from Roberto and, and caught it, the SNL skit about Angelinos and how we talk about directions is absolutely correct. It is the 605. <laughs> Did I do that? It is the 101, the 405. It is very much a thing. I know. It took me about 10 years to get used to it. But I've been here for 22 years, so I'm good with it. Well, hey, Roberto, thank you so much. Thank you for hosting this event uh, today, you know, getting the club together. Thank you for talking a little bit about you know, sort of the trials and tribulations around your shop and like what you have going for you that you think is good. And also, please remember, uh, boys and girls, if you're out there, if you are a home brewer. Make sure that you go support your local homebrew shop you know, because if they're giving you good customer service, if they're giving you those ingredients, they're giving you that feedback, you want them to be there. It's not worth the extra dollar that you get by buying something off of Amazon. You know, make sure that you go get those parts. Right? Keep, keep those local retailers in business because folks like Roberto are doing an awesome job for the homebrew community, and they're keeping things lively and fun. Thank you, sir. All right, so that was the first interview with Roberto Hernandez of Monrovia Homebrew Shop. And now we're going to move on and we're going to talk to uh, Ray Ricky Rivera and Luis Martinez of the SoCal Zavraseros. All right, welcome back, everybody. Once again, I find myself in the back room of Homebrew Shop. I don't know. I don't think I'm that presentable in public. That's the reason why I end up in places like this. But I have in front of me uh, Ray and Luis. Uh, guys, why don't you introduce yourself, and who are you guys from?
3: My name is Ray. Uh, I am a SoCal Vecetos, and Cervecedo is Spanish for brewer, so Southern California brewer.
4: Mm. All right, I'm uh, Luis Martinez. I'm from Preston Brewing. also joined the SoCal Cervecedo's, uh homebrew club. All right, and so uh, tell me a little bit. When did the club actually form up?
3: So the club is about two years old now, mm-hmm. maybe two and a half, closer to three. Um, History, it's weird. <laughs> and we, I want to say we started on a whim. Uh, myself and the current uh, club president, Agustin, who mm-hmm. also brews with Brujeria, which is a uh, Brujeria Brewers, which is another group of brewers who uh, hail from the Hacienda Heights area. Mm-hmm. So we met online and. I was just getting into homebrewing. Augustine, who brews with his brother and some other friends, had been doing it for several years. Mm-hmm. So I was just kind of asking questions, and he was helping me out. And one thing led to another, and we said, hey, have you noticed there isn't any homebrew clubs with people that look like us? He said, yeah, you're right. Would you be interested in putting one together? And I said, I don't know anything about homebrew clubs, but let's give it a shot. And here we are.
0: Well, I was going to say so to set the mark. I mean, like obviously, LA. I think mirrors uh, the LA homebrew clubs that are traditional. So, of course, my club being the Maltos Falcons, and you got Pacific Gravity, you got a couple others. I mean, it, it matches up with a lot of what the HA demographic studies have always said. You know, it's like a lot of white dudes with beers and uh, beards and beer guts. Right. Yeah, you know, and you know, LA of course is a multicultural city. I mean, this is you know a city where and I forget the exact percentages, but you know, white folks are no longer the majority, you know, like the Caucasian folks are, are, you know, are now under 50%. And, you know, it's also a very largely Latino city. So what the hell are we doing with a hobby that is across the city that doesn't have a very large Latino representation to it? right. So now, so what, what really inspired, you know, like, or uh, I should say, so what really drove the idea of like, okay, Hey, you know, look, you know, we we have all these other clubs in, in L.A., but we kind of want to have our own thing. You know, was there, was there a driving impetus behind that, or is it just like...
3: I, I think uh, what drove us to really create the club and um, to promote and try to gain more membership was that there's a void. Like mm-hmm. you mentioned, you know, um, L.A. is... A, there's a huge Latino population, population with a, a majority of that being um, Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. And so myself and Augustine are both of, of Mexican descent. And um, we just realized um, when we went to other homebrew clubs or homebrew shops, um, it was mainly older white males, mm-hmm. which is we're not saying is a bad problem. It's just there isn't anybody that kind of look like us, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just figured... There's got there's a void there, and so there must be other people like us. And we were right. There's a ton of brewers that out there, you know, that are from the Latino heritage. And so, really, the driving force behind it is there was a void and there's a need for it. And that's pretty much it. You know, we didn't set out to say, "Hey, let's create this all Latino club so we can be the biggest and you know the most popular." It's um, it really we were just trying to fill the void and just trying to uh, create a space where other people are comfortable and they can learn uh, more about the hobby. Mm-hmm.
4: I feel like another void that the Hispanic culture has brought to the brewing was the ingredients that we have. Mm. Um, a lot of tamarind, a lot of hibiscus, a lot of flavors that aren't into beers right now. We can make craft Mexican lagers nowadays. You know, mm-hmm. We can make a good lager that anybody can enjoy, American or Hispanic, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So I feel the the ingredients that we provide for brewing has also filled that void as well.
0: Well, I was going to say, I, I noticed that like hanging around with the club today, and also looking at some of the things that you guys have done in the past. I mean, there's like there are all the things that we tend to think of from a very Anglo point of view, where you know it's like, oh, look, you know, we got cinnamon doing this, and we got this, that, and the other uh, ginger, and, and that. But you know, it's you look at it, a lot of that's driven by a very large English heritage, right? You know, like mm-hmm. so the English palate of flavors coming in. And yeah, like looking at the beers that that we've even had today, you know, with the small representation that that's here. I mean, you know, seeing more things with, you know, passion fruit and guava and you know piñcelo and and like different uh, different flavors that come from a much more Latino sort of perspective. So I th- I kind of think that's interesting because hey, it's a whole other flavor pl- palette to play around with.
4: Exactly.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned guava because I've actually recently started using guava in my home brewing, and uh, I made a mango guava IPA. Mm -hmm. Now, had I not been home brewing, I would have never thought to use guava. Mm -hmm. My wife is Cuban, and uh, if you know anything about Cuban cuisine and what they're about, they use guava a lot in pastries Mm -hmm. and and things like that. So I was really introduced to the guava through my wife and her Cuban roots. And so now um, I'm a huge fan of guava. And somebody gifted me, like, five pounds of guava. And I was like, what am I going to do with all this guava? Let's throw it in a beer. But you know, like a home brewer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I would have never thought to use guava had I not been home brewing. So.
0: Well, and yeah, you're totally right about guava and Cuban cuisine. I mean, like I grew up in Florida and guava pastries all over the place. And of course, if you live here in LA, there's Portos and exactly and and, and the big thing out of Portos, aside from those little uh, paparinas that they do or the, the but guava, <laughs> hey, don't mess with the potato balls, man, are the, uh, the guava cheese pastries that they always
3: have. You got to try the guava smoothie. It's amazing. If you have not amazing,
0: I don't, I don't know if I can afford the calories I'm going to drink other than beer um
3: so now what are so how big is the club right now so we were kind of averaging about a dozen core members Mm -hmm. um our last event gained a ton of press you know Mm -hmm. we were featured on well yeah you
0: had uh, sarah bennett from kcrw sarah bennett yes Sarah, Uh, uh, by the way to the listeners if you haven't read sarah bennett has done a lot of la beer writing She's
3: awesome. What's really cool about Sarah, she, she also covers the local Latin music scene, yeah, mm-hmm. which um, some of us are also a part of mm-hmm. in one way or another. And um, so Sarah was like the perfect person to cover us. And she did a story for KCET. Mm-hmm. Originally, she pitched it to LA Weekly. Yep. And then she got the green light from KCET. So shout out to her. And we were also covered in the uh, OC Weekly by beer critic Bobby Bobby, Bobby Angel. Um, so anyhow, the point is, uh, we, we got some pretty good press mm-hmm. and the word got around and our last meeting, there was at least 40, 45, maybe 50 people, mm-hmm. which we had at Angry Horse, uh, brewing in, uh, Multiple. Montebello. And I want to say the head brewer there is a guy named Noah Teyes, mm-hmm. I believe is his last name. And he's a Latino. Yeah. And, uh,
0: yes. Noah and, uh, and Nathan.
3: Right. Noah and Nathan. And, um, so it's kind of hard to say today what our number is exactly, um, we fluctuate but we're well well over 30 I would say so you know uh, when you take a look at our numbers and other homebrew clubs mm-hmm. have been around um, we're not that large but well no but you guys have 2 years and it's supposed
0: to say like right. the Falcons who've had exactly 43
3: <laughs> but but what's interesting about that is because we are the only existing all latino homebrew club in in the state, if mm-hmm. not the country, by default we're the largest right. well but i do I do think that's an interesting point just because when I was talking before
0: I the club has a Latino focus, but it's not Latino exclusive no, correct right I mean correct yeah like you could be you know white boys and, and <laughs> yes. show up and it, it really still does fall down into the same rules of you like beer good come hang out with us exactly.
3: yes exactly I mean this we, we are a true homebrew club so. At the root of what we do, it's all about building your skills, building your palate, learning about the process, and really refining what it is. So we're just about making great beer and trying to make great beer. And we just happen to be Latino, so. (laughs)
4: Hey,
3: hey, uh, there's nothing wrong with any
0: any of that. I like good beer, so I'm I'm happy to hang out with everybody. Uh, So now, you guys, yeah, you said you were at Angry Horse uh, last month, and obviously, so you guys float from, like, brewery to brewery, but... You guys don't have like a homebrew shop that uh, that hosts you right
3: now. <laughs> uh, well, I would say the closer we get to that is here at Monrovia. You mm-hmm. know, Robert, who's now a SoCal Septicidal member, has been gracious enough to host us a couple times. We had a meeting here a couple months back. And um, this is probably as close as we get to a home base because mm-hmm. we, we do move around a lot. And that's pretty much just speaks to the membership that we have. We have people that live in Irvine, Hacienda Heights, uh, South Central. Wow the Compton area, Mm Lewis here is from Long Beach. Mm -hmm. I live out in Norwalk. Um, so, you know, we have people spread out all over the County. So we just move around. Once
0: again, for everybody who's not uh, Los Angeles based, that pretty much means you're spending your whole life in a car
3: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) in traffic. Right.
0: (laughs) So uh, thinking about like, obviously like one of the big things for the American Homebrews Association, where I spend a lot of time serving on the governing committee and I, I actually helped found what exists on the governing committee, which is the diversity committee, right? Which is all about trying to figure out like, okay, so how do we, how do we bust homebrewing out of just the white dude shell and put it into like the hands of women and into people of color? Yeah, you know, like what do you what do you think is the biggest thing, you know, that That regular clubs like, you know, like say the Falcons or uh, Pacific Gravity or those guys, you know, like, you know, the old school clubs who don't necessarily have that focus. What's the best way you think for those clubs to sort of open themselves up so that isn't that sort of like, like, dude, there's nobody here who looks like me, you know, type situation.
3: I mean, that's a really great question. And even our homebrew club is trying to figure out how do we attract um, more women Mm -hmm. into the craft other Latinos, mm-hmm. um, it's 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 a tricky thing, and I'm not sure there's one way about it. It's more of like a, a the, the culture of home brewing. You know, if if you take a look at the craft beer industry in general, mm-hmm. there's already a huge void that exists there, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look at um, head brewers and breweries, they're going to predominantly be white males. So I think it begins there. Mm-hmm. So as the industry as a whole begins to change, Mm -hmm. then so will the culture at the homebrew level. Um, That's a great question. I don't really have an answer. I don't know if if Lewis can chime in here.
4: I think it's more about the type of ingredients. Back to the ingredients. Um, I think it's more about the ingredients we bring into the world. Mm -hmm. Um, The more diversity, the more crazy beers we make, I feel is going to bring more people into the industry. Um, A lot of Hispanics drink the same beers, they drink Corona, they drink you know, Bud Light, Budweiser. Um, if we can make that into craft mm-hmm. and bring, let them know, like, hey, there's other beers out there that you guys can enjoy that you guys can make on your own, and I think that's going to bring a lot of um, diverse into the club. I feel like a lot of other... Um, what word am I trying to say? Like other diversities. They Mm -hmm. stick to the same beer. They make the pale ales. They make the IPAs. They make Mm -hmm. the same stouts. So when you start bringing in more different varieties of beer, you're going to bring more diversity in there as well. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I I think there's something to be said for, like, breaking out sort of the same palate, right? But, I mean, also it seems like you guys are going to serve a very important function in the fact, like, I mean, you look like how craft beer has risen up, right? Craft beer was largely driven by the homebrew world, right? Why why did we get why did why did Sierra Nevada get founded? Right, Sierra Nevada got founded because Steve Grossman had a craft uh, had a homebrew shop, and he taught people how to homebrew, and he wanted to oh hey I can do this I can make a brewery, and uh, look I mean what were it like five thousand breweries in the U.S. Mm-hmm. something like that.
4: Exactly.
0: I'd be I would be hard pressed to. To, I would be hard pressed to believe that the percentage of breweries have opened up in the US that haven't been opened up by former home brewers isn't somewhere in like the 90 percentile range. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, right? It's like you got to get some folks in different communities interested in these different beers, right? Like, like a lot of the guys who served in the U.S. military in the 70s who went overseas and saw like German lagers or English ales came back and said, wait, hold on, we're missing that, right? You know, it's like, so now how do we penetrate the the other parts of the American community who maybe not, who haven't been exposed to that? You know, and it's like, how do you, how does that work? And then get them into home brewing, and then they, they open up the breweries and boom, 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 boom. You know, you get that multiplicative effect, right?
3: I think um, part of that has to do with resources as well, and... Um Who, you know, if you think about um, our our school system, right, Mm -hmm. and you look at the population who goes on to um, to enter, let's say, private schools Mm -hmm. or uh, four year universities, you know, what kind of people are the are they? You know what I mean? Like um, what kind of resources did they have growing up? What kind of neighborhoods are they from? What kind of, um, you know, what what did their what are their parents doing? Um, where do they exist on the tax bracket? Let's just say, mm-hmm. you know. And so, when you think about it in, the, in those terms, and you look at home brewing, uh, it's kind of expensive. It's an expensive hobby, you know. Mm-hmm. So, when you're talking about Latinos, and you look at the population, let's just say Los Angeles alone, you know, mm-hmm. where are where we? everybody's yeah. cash drives? Right, right. So, like, you know, can we afford to get into this hobby? Mm-hmm. You know, do we have the resources to get into this hobby? So, I think that plays a huge part in does, in, yeah. in the bigger picture
0: um well no I'll, but i will still say that homebrewing as a hobby is probably far more cost cost effective than say buying beer every week well, <laughs> not even buying beer. like i i used to like i used to be a, a competition uh shooter and i also tried golf and i tried all these oh, other right, sort of things right, right. oh yeah all that stuff is way more expensive than homebrewing. Right. But it's, it's still, true. I mean I get it. It's like yeah, you know, it's like you have to look at like where you're gonna put your disposal, disposable income and exactly. like sometimes you gotta go.
4: But look at you, Drew. You you still extract brew, don't you? Oh sorry, Brew. Drew, um you extract brew, don't you? Like you still do that, don't yeah, you? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've heard his podcast where he's still extract brewing and making great amazing beer. You don't need to spend that amount of money. No. To brew a good beer. No,
0: well, and truthfully, I mean, like, I extract brew, I all grain brew. I don't, I'm stupid. Like, I've, I'm, <laughs> I'm, like, obsessed. So, like, I, I, would not put me anywhere near the typical, uh, typical range of any homebrewing experience. But, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, like, just this whole conversation, like, the whole feedback loop, like, where we're talking, like, okay, yeah, homebrewers becoming brewers, becoming, uh, inspiring more homebrewers becoming more brewers, et cetera and and bringing some of those flavors in. I remember so there's a brewery for those who aren't in the LA area, uh, Progress Brewing Company in South El Monte. And South El Monte is a very largely Latino community. Uh, very working class. You know, it's not, you know, there's there's nothing high about the community, right? It does not fall into the gentrification spectrum at right, all. Right. And Not yet. No, 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 not yet. Uh, uh, and that's LA for you. Eventually, everything will become gentrified or something. Who knows? Until everybody owns like 50 acres because <laughs> it's all owned by Persian oil barons or something. Um, but I was in South Hill Monte and stopped at Progress Brewing Company. And I'm used to being at a craft brewery. And I'm like, I look around and it's a bunch of heavy set white dudes with beards and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But it's a comfortable community, right? Because it's it's my community. And I walked into Progress and Progress was, you know, it's a great little brewery. You know, they got their little brewing and then they got a separate room that has sort of their cellar storage plus the bar and that area is bigger than everything else. A couple TVs, they had the food truck out in the back making schnitzel. It was an awesome time. But I remember at one point I stopped and I looked around and I realized it was the exact inverse of what I'm used to at a craft brewery because (laughs) like instead of me being like amongst a bunch of white dudes, it was like I was one of five white folks there, and everybody else in this very jam-packed brewery tasting room was Latino of some heritage, right? You know, It was like, and looking around, and the thing that impressed me the most, and I think the thing that was most hopeful about it was it became very apparent to me in sitting in there for a while that these were people who were really passionate about the beer that was being poured, but it was still, that whole crowd was very much a neighborhood crowd, mm-hmm. That was that's the neighborhood bar. That's that's where they're going to hang out and to go have that as an experience. Mm-hmm. And I mean I think to me, of anything else, that is actually sort of a big hopeful point, right? It's like
4: That's you know, what brewing's about, seeing everybody happy, enjoying your beer. Like that's all you want to do as a brewer.
0: You yeah. Know? But but also I mean, uh, so we've talked a little bit on the podcast before where like we're now finally reaching the point I think where a lot of brewers are going to have to make the decision: Are you going to try to bust out into that major market, or are you going to be the neighborhood thing? And like looking at progress, I mean, they they seem to have very solid, very well solidified around the idea of being, hey, we're the neighborhood brewery, yeah. You know, and so therefore, you know, we're we're somewhere and they're not doing anything like I would consider to be unique to you know, like oh, this is. This is, oh, no, we're very targeting the, the Hispanic market or the uh, Latino market. It's, hey, these are our beers. We're in a Latino market. Everybody here is enjoying it. You know, we got like a Hellas, which, by the way, it was an awesome Hellas. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's interesting to see where that feedback loop is going to go. And, I mean, I think you guys are going to play a very large role in some of that too because, again, it's getting people comfortable and getting people into that cycle.
3: Yeah, you know that's a really great observation, and you're completely right. And with progress, you know, if you look at it, if you take off that the fact that they're it's Latino owned and mm-hmm. their customer base is largely Latino, if you take all that out of the equation, at the root of it, they're just filling a void as a business, as any other industry would, right? Like
4: you. Well, I mean, I
0: think you could. I think you could take progress, change nothing about their beers, change nothing about their branding, change nothing about anything else. Drop it in the middle of. Kansas,
4: <laughs> yeah, or Santa Monica,
0: yeah. Drop it in the middle of like sort of a more traditional uh, white neighborhood, and Nebraska people, somewhere. Yeah, uh, but people uh, people wouldn't blink. I mean, there's nothing. Right. That, there's nothing about the brewery that calls it out special, right? It, but it's, not,
1: yeah, but it,
0: right. yeah. You know, I mean, there are some flavor combinations that might be a little strange, but then again, look at our typical craft breweries; they're all doing like strange dog Yeah, well, dogfish is going crazy. So I mean, like, but. Progress seems to have hit on a formula like where yeah no they've become the neighborhood thing.
3: Yeah, you know, I'm 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 glad you brought that up because I'm originally from Boyle Heights, which is right mm-hmm. next to East LA. Um it's like 90 90- nine percent latino nope. and um well and it used to be the jewish community in la right and it, at one point it was russian and yeah, yeah so and italian everything, before everything, that everything changes actually i had this conversation with sarah and she was telling me that her family is originally from boyle heights and they're italian mm-hmm. but today she can't go around saying that because people are like no you're not there's no way you're from boyle heights yeah. <laughs> but the point is now i live in norwalk and norwalk is very similar to almani Al- Al- or a boyle heights where there's a lot of latinos mm-hmm. I there's actually a lot of Latinos and a, and a lot of Filipinos. Mm-hmm. But within the n- city of Norwalk, there's nothing like a progress. There, yeah. There is no microbrewery. There is no brew pub. For my wife and I and our family to get that experience, the closest thing we get to that is like BJ's, which is in Cerritos. Yeah. So, um And that's kind of one of the reasons why I also got into home brewing and helped start this club is because my, my dream is to open up the Norwalk mm-hmm. brew house in Norwalk and, and would be exactly what progress is doing, which is filling the local void, not trying to become say stone brewing and package and distribute nationwide. Mm-hmm. Now they do the world. Right. Um, but really just, um, exist for the local community and really be a staple for the locals there. Yeah. Cause there's a huge void there. And, um, it's just a very interesting point that you bring up, and you're right. You know, Progress isn't doing anything particularly great or groundbreaking, I should say, mm-hmm. but they're filling a void and they're doing a good job by. Well, they're they're making good quality beer. They're right. making a com-
0: comfortable environment, and they're bringing people together to to enjoy the beer. I mean, like I don't know. I mean, I think I've seen Progress beer a few times outside of the brewery. Oh, really? i haven't seen any yeah uh, uh, like everyone's but no i mean i think they sell most of their beer across the board. but you nice. know what that's fine
3: that's exactly, exactly that's great i mean germany operates on that model yeah um and that's probably that, that might be the, the next wave in, in in the american craft beer industry where oh, it's yeah. you know you're just focusing on a really small small region and um you know, you're not trying to be, you know, again, you're not trying to be ballast point or something like that, you know?
0: Well, yeah it, yeah, it always used to be in in the craft beer world. It's like, okay, so I'm going to try and go deep in my local community right? or I'm going to go shallow and wide, right? So it was like, you know, the, you know, say, yeah, the stones initially before they blew up and went wide versus, say, at the brewery or St. Somewhere or Jolly Pumpkin where it was like, okay, no, we're going really shallow, but we're going across a lot of wide markets, right? And nowadays, it seems like we've developed a third option, which is I'm going to go super freaking deep in a very tiny locale.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's that's going to be my service range. And there's something to be said for it. You know, It's kind of a manageable thing. Um, all right. So, again, uh, going back, thinking again for... Uh, Clubs who I mean let's face it, I mean, you know not everybody's living in Los Angeles, not everybody's living in Texas or anywhere where there are large Latino communities that are there, but there are still you know, hey, guess what people? there are Latinos, Latinos everywhere in the US. We're coming for you. <laughs> the taco trucks are there. Um, but no, I mean um, so for people who may not uh, who are running homebrew clubs that may not necessarily be in a large Latino community. I mean, are there things that that would help make clubs more approachable? Again, and I say this because I look around, and it's not just Latinos or other people of colors. It's just I think there are sometimes challenges for any homebrew club to make themselves feel more welcoming to anybody who isn't already part of the club. So, if from if from your all's experience, since I mean, it seems like a good portion of the membership is either uh, people who have been in other homebrew clubs or are parts of other homebrew clubs, maybe smaller homebrew clubs and also have this sort of as an overarching thing. Are there things that you think need to happen or should happen amongst other homebrew clubs where that can be a little bit more of a bridge?
3: You know, I think one of the things you can do as a club or someone who's trying to recruit Mm -hmm. new people is just don't be a beer snob. <laughs> don't be a homebrewer snob. You know, um, and and I'm not saying that to to insult anyone. Um, you know, when you're first coming in, it can be very intimidating. You know, um, you're talking about pitching yeast. You're talking about maintaining mash temps mm-hmm. and. You know, these are all regular things to us who have been homebrewing for some time. But for somebody new to it, it's just like it can be an overload or, or you know, it can be it can you can turn someone off. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it even even, at, it, yeah. you know, even in our, our own meetings. And no one's really doing this purposely uh, where you get somebody new who has no clue. But they're interested. They saw a post on Instagram or Facebook, and you know you pique their interest. and They want to learn more. They come to the meeting, and all of a sudden they just hear all this crazy jargon, right? And it's all just going, yeah. Right over and their it's head. just like super <laughs> in- intimidating, right? And I could see that happening. Even if, say, um, you know you're a group of twenty five guys meeting, and then you get you know the the, the one female who. who who's interested and she comes in and she sees all these guys You know, it can be very intimidating. So it can be the same experience for someone who has no clue about what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think is uh, if, if you're, if you're mindful about the, the way you, you, you approach somebody new and bringing them in, I think that could be, um, helpful, you know, just, um, you know, not, not being so technical at first, maybe with, with newbies and, um, just kind of holding their hand I guess you know
0: well I mean what I always try to tell people is uh, you know remember to be to be friendly to be warm I'm a nerd this is really hard for me like but this is a (laughs) lesson I've really tried to focus on because I think it's important it's like and the problem is is like I mean look most of us who are involved deeply with beer nerdery well we're kind of nerdy which means that you know there are social anxiety (laughs) issues and everything else that go along with it and it's really, really hard, I think, for people to focus in on that idea of like, no, no, you have to, you have to open yourself up to be vulnerable in the sense of, yeah, being, you know, welcoming, like going, going up to people and say, oh, hey, Ray, I'm Drew. How are you doing? Yeah, you know, like, you know, introducing yourself, and yeah, being that friendly thing, and yeah, I, I think, I think that goes double for any older homebrew club that has well formed cliques, you know, like I mean, my club obviously does. Like most clubs that have been around for any period of time. And even like what you guys were saying, you know, with your club that's only been around for two years, you know, sometimes that's still a little challenging because, no, you got to get people out of that, right? You've got to get people to be warm and welcoming and make people feel like, no, no, I've got a reason to
4: ask questions. I've got a reason, got a reason to be involved. Yeah, you're right. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I've actually gone to homebrew clubs and... I felt intimidated. I I had questions, I had concerns and you know, I felt like a dummy sometimes going in there and asking, "Hey, what do I mash in at?" Mm-hmm. And they give you like a like that stare like you you don't know. Like, "Come on, <laughs> you know." So, sometimes it's a little challenging and I feel like as a homebrewer going into the the hobby, it's it's challenging and like you said, as long as you're opening and welcoming, I think any homebrew club Will take you in like how we did today with the extract mm-hmm. and an all grain batch, so we we enticed any you know. Well, I'm trying to remember what what did we do today? We did an amber yeah. extract, an amber extract, down. and a Belgian all grain, yeah, Belgian
0: and five ale. gallons of a or five gallons of Belgian strong. Ten gallons. Oh, sorry, ten yeah. gallons. I'm sorry, ten gallons of a Belgian strong ale, uh, which is boiling outside right yeah, now. it Should
4: be boiling. It should yeah. be finishing finish. up pretty soon.
0: All right, uh, so. Uh, Before we we leave, uh, any last thoughts, like anything that you want to communicate out about the club, about, you know, like sort of getting people involved or recipes or flavor combinations that you think people need to explore?
3: Uh, Well, I'll I'll say that since we started the SoCal Sedvesettos and since I started homebrewing, I've met a ton of great people, Mm -hmm. black, brown, white, and purple and green. And um, the Homebrook c- community at large is very welcoming. People are so helpful. You know, I've met people who have given me free gear, mm-hmm. uh, lots of great tips, and have generally been supportive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I will say that it's been a great experience for me. Um, I'm about three and a half years in now. And um, it's been fun watching the SoCal settles grow, you know, build our membership and really we're, we're, we were learning as we we are still learning. We're learning mm-hmm. how to do this. So, um, I just want to say if anybody's interested in checking us out, you can, uh, find us on Instagram, Facebook, or visit, uh, Um, and we'll include a link to that in the podcast. <laughs> we have, uh, an event that's scheduled for sometime in October. So visit us on social media to find that out. The batches that we brewed today, we're going to be pouring then. Uh, maybe second or third week of October. What we what we do is we like to partner with nonprofits to help raise money for um, organizations that are doing work locally throughout the LA County, mm-hmm. um, especially those organizations that work with youth, and and whether it be education and. Whatnot, we just really like to support those types of organizations. So, what I I was gonna say, you guys got written up for the last one that you guys did. Right, we partnered with the uh, El Centro del Pueblo, which is an organization in Echo Park, right next to the venue, the Echo, Mm -hmm. and the Ecoplex. And they do, Which are
0: very famous venues here. Right, worldwide.
3: right, right. Sorry, I forgot this is like a worldwide <laughs> podcast. Um, but El Centro del Pueblo has been around since the 70s, mm-hmm. and they do amazing work in, in the local community. They help with job placement, with uh, child care, health care, uh, drug addiction, things of that sort. Uh, they just run the gamut when it comes to services for the locals there. And so uh, we partnered up with them. We had an event, and it was great. We had about 12 to 13 different beer styles. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the groups that participated were Lewis and as Preston Brewing, uh, Monrovia, Robert and Monrovia Brew Shop, mm-hmm. Hub City, uh, Brujeria, Norwalk Brewhouse, South Central Brewing Company, and uh, Inquisitor Brewing out of Anaheim, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are groups that exist on their own, but they're all members of the SoCal Cerveceros. So... I like to joke that we are the uh, Wu Tang Clan of the homebrewing community. <laughs> so, uh, if you don't know who the Wu Tang Clan is, go ahead and Google them. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you yeah, know. If, you,
0: if you don't know who the Wu Tang Clan is, really, come on.
3: <laughs> but really, uh, just check us out. Um, yes, we promote ourselves as an all Latino based homebrew com- oh, right. club, uh, but we're not exclusively Latino. Um, we would love to see you know more people of color. And we would love to see more women take up the, mm-hmm. the hobby. So check us out, visit us, come hang out, catch our meeting. Uh, we meet every third Friday of the month, and like you mentioned, Drew, we we uh, move around a lot. So you yeah. gotta you gotta catch us on uh, social media to find the next meeting.
0: There you go. So all right. So yeah, make sure you pay attention to Facebook and Instagram and all the other good places to go find out where SoCal is meeting. So you can go have some different beers, and it also, I mean, hey, look, you know, if you're if you're Latino and you're listening to this podcast, hey, you know, this is a, a welcoming community. Not that the homebrewing community in general is unwelcoming. It's just right, like, right. <laughs> I mean, I think I think the biggest thing about it is that people always feel comfortable when they get involved in a thing when they can look around and, as you said, like, hey, I can look around, I can see people who look like me, right? And I think the big bridge there. At least on the homebrew side is going to be getting people who you know who who are Latino who don't necessarily feel welcome in other places to suddenly go wait hold on I can do this and then suddenly also have the other realization of like oh yeah no all those people in those other cl- clubs it's not that they don't like me it's just they're nerds and therefore yeah. they they have problems with that sort of thing <laughs> yeah
3: definitely you know I I've never been in a situation where I was like oh my God I'm not wanted here because I'm brown you know at least. In terms of homebrewing, <laughs> uh, in other areas and arenas, not so much. But homebrewing—I've never been in a situation where you know I didn't feel wanted because of my background. Let's just say. Um, well, homebrewing home in general is a very welcoming. Definitely, sport, definitely, you know.
0: and I mean there's there are some elements that are, but there are going to be some elements that are n- never going to be opening wherever you are, no matter what you're doing. So.
3: But I, I I really believe it starts with letting people know that they can brew their own beer because yeah. <laughs> most people have no idea they can make their own beer. You know, they, they think it's like you're making moonshine or something, you know, I I
0: had a landlord who I lived in, I lived in her apartment for 12 years and I swear to sweet baby Jesus every other year, it was like, are you sure you're doing what you're doing is legal? The owners are coming in to inspect. Are you sure? like, yes, here's the federal statute. Here's the California state statute. It's completely legal. Leave me alone. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, I can, I can totally get it. Yeah. Yeah, well, hey, uh, Ray Lewis, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, hey, Lewis, actually, uh, tell somebody, uh, tell people about uh, Preston. Uh,
4: Preston Brewing uh, started off as home brewing back in uh, 2013. Uh, my son was born back in 2013. Going with a newborn to a brewery wasn't really a big thing back then. They'd give you the stink eye. They see a crying baby. They're like, "What are you doing, bringing a kid to a brewery for?" Nowadays, you can show up with the baby, right? And Nowadays, a, and a it's a dog all cool. and... Yeah, so. Back then, I was like, hey, it's diapers or beer. So I decided to start homebrewing. I felt like, hey, I can make that kind of beer. I can Mm -hmm. do it myself. So uh, my son's middle name is Preston. So I named it after him. Uh, He's the reason why I started brewing. So, yeah, I've been going for two two 2013. Um, just got a job at Belmont Brewing. Mm-hmm. So I'll be uh, brewing there from now on. So one day, hopefully, open our, up our own brewery in Long Beach. So There you go. There it right. is. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, hey, guys, any last words that you want to spread out to the community before we
3: leave? Come to our next event. <laughs> um, next event next I, I, I think uh, everything's been said here, but we just really <laughs> want to thank you for... Um, Attending, coming out, putting us on your podcast. You know, Lewis is a huge fan. He wants your autograph after this. (laughs) No, but, uh, you know, um, we just appreciate the support, you know, and we we support you back. So thank you so much, Drew, for all you do and you and your podcast buddies. And uh, let's keep pushing this um, hobby forward. Hey, I was going to say, I mean, the hobby can only get stronger
0: the more people we bring into it. Mm
4: -hmm. Agree.
0: Yeah, you know? and and also, you know, and like we said earlier, like with some of the different flavors that, that show up, like, uh, I mean, I know people were saying, hey, we didn't plan it today, but today ended up kind of being a sour beer day where it was like a lot of different sour beers, but also a lot of sour beers with different flavors, different fruits, different other things that, that I wouldn't necessarily normally consider normal. Dude, bring me new flavors.
3: I want new flavors. Once we figure out how to get the taco into the beer It's over. It's over. It's over. I'll I'll take a taco beer. (laughs) They're coming for you, dogfish. It's over. Sorry, Sam. (laughs) Sorry, buddy. All right.
0: Well, again, thank you so much, guys. Really good luck, and we'll make sure to give you guys a lot of links so you can track down the events and also so you can take some lessons into your own local community and and hopefully uh, enliven some of the local homebrew spirit there as well. All right. Peace. Cheers. Thank you. Peace. Cheers. Well hey, so that's both of the interviews. I I don't know about you, but I thought it was, you know, really interesting to kind of dig in. And I know that the day I was there hanging out with those guys, one, super passionate about the beer because hey, we're beer nerds. And that's one of the great hopes I think we have for this whole thing. It's like, hey, we're all beer nerds. Let's enjoy this. But really that day when I was there, I mean, it was really eye-opening because so many of the beers that were that were coming in, that guys were dropping off and sharing while the brewing was going on outside because hey, it's Southern California, it's hot out there. It's air conditioned inside. they were a a wild mix of flavors and, you know, a lot of things that I don't necessarily think of, you know, when we're doing beer, you know, but they're very common in in a lot of different Latino cuisines, you know, the guavas and whatnot. I also saw a very heavy uh, sort of emphasis on the sour beer. So it was really kind of cool, but it was, I think, also really great to see that, you know, these guys were trying to crack the nut on how to include their community into sort of the great big craft beer and homebrew passion that we all have. And hopefully, you know, kind of, broaden the horizons for everything that we're doing
1: yeah man it it was really great um it's a really interesting take on a homebrew club and uh, i'm really glad you got to try some of their beers because they sound pretty cool
0: oh yeah they were definitely awesome
1: cool all right everybody we're gonna take a quick break here to grab ourselves something to drink and when we come back we're gonna wrap up the show with some questions a quick tip and something other than beer so we'll be right back Hey, we're back. Hope I didn't scare you. Uh, We are going to start off here by reading a couple questions that we've gotten via email and seeing if we can come up with any kind of answers for them. Just a quick reminder, you can always email questions to podcast at experimentalbrew.com.
0: Or you can even leave us uh, a voicemail at 626-765-1ALE. 626-765-1ALE.
1: And as I always say, you can remember that because one ale is never enough. Okay, you get the first one here, buddy.
0: All right. So the, we're going to tackle two questions today because uh, we're still recovering our voices from all the questions we tackled the last time. Uh, and the first one comes from uh, Brandon Pesavento from Apple Valley, California, via Facebook. It says here, I'm in a homebrew club and lately it has turned into more of a drinking club. We are trying to get back to our educational roots. Thanks to your podcast, you have given me many topics to speak about, as well as turning me on to the Blueosophy podcast. It has helped, but due to ego, there is one topic that is hard to discuss with the brewers. I figured you would be good to ask, because you're also part of a renowned club. Yep. And we wondered how you guys (laughs) deal with the hard task of critiquing a brewer's beer. We obviously do it to help the brewer, as well as set a standard for our clubs at festivals and competitions. We would like to be like Quaff and the Maltos Falcons one day, but we don't want to scare or discourage in, in, anyone in any way. After all, this is still a hobby for fun. Any advice would be amazing. Was thinking about some kind of anonymous score sheet, like competitions, but not as official. A little more fun, maybe. Alright, so Brandon and I actually talked about this on Facebook, and we went back and forth for a little while. And basically, here's what it boils down to. One... If you're wanting to get some more help with educational topics, the very first thing to realize, because it's relatively brand new, the AHA uh, Club Committee has now actually put out the AHA Club Connection newsletter. I think it comes out twice a month. And it's all about like things to talk about at homebrew clubs. So you can go find that out. Go to the uh, AHA's website, homebrewsassociation.org, slash community, slash clubs. And you can sign your club up for that list and get the ideas that are coming out of everybody around the uh, AHA. And for me, I think we do two things at the Maltos Falcons uh, for helping do this critiquing thing. One is you show up to our meetings, and it's not like the usual bottle share thing. Uh, you show up to the meeting, you put your name on a board. Uh, I sit there, I put all the beers in a style order, you know, basically a tasting order. And when it comes time for your beer to be you know, tasted... You hand your beer over to a couple of pourers, they pour it out for everybody who's in the room, and that's anywhere from 40 to 80 people, and you stand up in front of everybody and you tell them the story of the beer, you know, what the recipe was, what your malt choices were, what your, your ingredient choices were, what went right, what went wrong, all that sort of usual stuff. And then people will ask you questions as they're tasting your beer, and they'll offer comments. Now, this is great because you're getting the benefit of a lot of different people's experience, but... To me, it's got two problems with it, which is one, it is really freaking intimidating for any brewer, particularly a new brewer, to go stand up in front of 80 people and go, here's my beer, don't hate me. Two is because everybody recognizes that fact. You, It's hard for people to give honest criticism without coming off as a dick. So, people tend to be a little bit nicer, which is fine. It's kind of what you want. But the other thing that we did to kind of help ameliorate both of those Is we gave people a second option. There's a thing I run at every club meeting called the troubleshooters corner. And basically, it's me and another senior judge, and maybe a couple of others. And we go off to, to the side, and you bring your beers to us, and we taste them, and we ask you questions. And the rule of it is we will give you a very fair, honest, but also not overtly harsh criticism of your beer. Uh, I like to think of it as, like, basically, it's a BJCP session. If the judges could actually ask you questions and go, hey, so did you use roasted malt in this? What did you do? And those are the two things that I think that we do in the club. Um, The other thing I will also tell people is, because I also do this, I I end up imbibing my fair share of terrible beer or questionable beer. And you want to give somebody a critique, but you want to kind of have them walk away from not going... You know, Drew's really kind of a jerk. He he doesn't like my beer. He's mean. So I always, I don't remember where I learned this, but I got taught this one time years and years ago. It's the idea of the critique sandwich. And I'll always lead into a discussion of somebody's beer with something that I find positive about it. You know, and sometimes that may be, hey, this beer is cold. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll lay in, What I think are the foundational critiques, what needs to be changed or, you know, what might be some issues or problems. And then I'll close my commentary with another positive comment about the beer and the brewer. Because mostly what you want to do is you don't want to lead in with something harsh because then that shuts people off immediately. You don't want to close with something harsh because that just means people are going to think that you're a jerk. If you sort of sandwich the harshness of the critique in between those two, then people have a better chance of being receptive to what you're saying. So there you go. In order to get your your beers judged, that's that's one thing. I know I do also know that some clubs. I don't like the idea of passing out score sheets to everybody because that becomes like work. But I do know that some clubs will actually say, "Hey, you three senior judges, can you guys prepare score sheets for the beers that we're having today?" And do it that way, and that's one way to do it so that you're not burdening most of your club, and also generating a lot of useless feedback. So there you go. Uh, Join the uh, join the HA Club Connection. Uh, try, uh, try either a small panel of judges or do exactly like what we do with the troubleshooters corner and make sure that you really do deliver good criticism, but that you're not trying to be a, um, a jerk about it. What do you think? Dave? Yeah, right.
1: Yeah. There's, there's definitely ways to point out flaws without making somebody feel like they're a bad person, you know? Um, so above all, keep in mind that what you're trying to do is be helpful. So be helpful. That's pretty much the best advice I can give. Okay. Next question comes from Martin Olson, who says, hello guys. I've been listening to your show a lot and it's amazingly good. Thanks for that. Now I have a little aside here. I have to wonder if he's like amazed because it's us or, uh, I know we're amazed every time we pull off a good one. Okay. A question of course about priming sugar and CO2 volumes. I'm a big Belgian beer liker. It's the favorite sort of beers for me. Mostly darker quads and doubles, but I'll go for a pale ale, blonde, saisons, and whatever, as long as there's a Belgian strain involved. I just love it. However, I'm going to make this a little bit complex with Celsius and Grams for you. Yeah, well, I'm going to answer you in Fahrenheit and ounces, so I'll make you get it back, buddy. I've been using the calculator on BrewersFriend.com for priming sugar. Today, I bottled a Rochefort 8 Clonish that I've been working with. I bottled with 3.2 grams for a 33-centiliter bottle. That's 9.6 grams of sugar in one liter. This will give me roughly 3.2 volumes of CO2 with a fermentation temperature of 24 degrees Celsius. A lot of people use 7 grams per liter in Belgian beers, and I myself have had problems with that because the sediment goes shooting out the bottom into the beer, ruining a perfectly clear beer. How are you supposed to think when you carb Belgians? I want the big fizzy carbonation, but not gusher-like bottles. Hope you guys can understand my rather bad rant here. Bless you guys. (laughs) I can always use a little bit of that.
0: And just to make sure, I think if I did my conversions correctly, so at the rate that he's talking about, that's about six point six ounces of sugar per five gallon batch. I think. Wow,
1: that's too much. <laughs> well, uh, but not uh, if Martin, he's going for Martin,
0: not if he's going for you know big high carbonation. I think.
1: I I run in the five to five and a half ounces uh, per five gallons and. You know, I can't tell you how many volumes that is right offhand, but that uh, that is what works for me and ends up being pretty highly carbonated. So okay, Martin, a couple tips here. Um, number one, make sure that the temperature you're using is the highest temperature the beer reaches during fermentation. Uh, that's because the higher the temperature, the more the CO2 comes out of solution. So the highest temperature you reach will be when there is the lowest amount of CO2 in, in solution there. Um, if you use a different number, you may be using the wrong amount of sugar. Um, and make sure that the calculator you're using is accurate, although I have to assume that Brewer's friend is. And... Uh, Beyond that, um, make sure the sugar is well mixed. Uh, It almost sounds like he's carving per bottle, doesn't it?
0: Well, or at least he's he's thinking about it that way.
1: Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, Yeah, you know, I I don't really know why you would be having a problem if you use the correct temperature and the correct amount of sugar. Um, And I will say that... Some of the Belgian beers that I've had exhibit exactly what you're trying to get rid of. So maybe you're not that far off anyway. You got any anything to add to that?
0: Well, no. I mean, I I think my primary thing was uh, if he's really having problems with it being sort of really aggressive. Because I mean, I've done, you know, five, six volumes in a beer before without much problem. Now, I mean, that's always going to be aggressively carbonated. I mean, those are my champagne beers when the, when those are flying out there.
1: Just what I was thinking of.
0: And the best thing I can say is that, I mean, I know you've got to, you've got to make sure that everything is completely fermented. you got to make sure that you've got as much things settled out as you can. Uh, but I've never had any problems getting it up that way. So, yeah, I would say, get everything cold, get everything or get everything aggressively fermented, get everything cold and well settled, and yeah, you just gotta, you, you gotta let that cake really sit down hard because he had a follow-up question about like, you know, stirring up all that uh, stirring up all the sediment. so it's like, you know, cold crash, don't worry about it. Uh, and yeah, make sure it's cold when you're open because even in the those champagne beers, they will fly.
1: Yeah, definitely so, man. I remember you shooting a a cork across the room. Like, what was that? Orlando? Uh,
0: I don't think it was Orlando. I think it was the. Uh, I think it was the next one. But yeah, we we shot corks across ballrooms with that thing. <laughs>
1: It was pretty exciting. Okay, so Martin, I guess uh, to just kind of like summarize things, make sure that you're using the correct temp, the highest temp that you reach during fermentation. Make sure you're weighing your sugar accurately. Make sure that you're mixing it thoroughly. And other than that, man, keep trying. That's all I can say.
0: All right. So time for a quick tip. And Denny, what is it?
1: My quick tip uh revolves around being organized despite all appearances. I like to be organized, especially when I brew. Um, and one way to do that is by having all the things you need for a particular task right at hand when you're using them. Now I have, uh, dedicated a portion of my garage to my brewery. So I have a number of little, Oh, you know, kind of like rubber made plastic shelf units, uh, maybe like a a foot cube, something like that with three or four drawers in it. And I put those around in different places on my counter or wherever I need them. So that when I'm doing an operation in a particular part of the brewery, I can just open a drawer and grab what I need really easily. Uh, I am, anal retentive to the point where everything goes back into the same drawer every time in the same place in the drawer so I know what I can pull out and grab quickly. If you're the kind of person who sets up in your kitchen or someplace else every time, you should look into some small toolboxes that you can stick around with the equipment you need for various operations in various parts of your kitchen. You know, Maybe you only need one, maybe two, maybe three of them. Um, you know, so that like your bottling stuff goes in one toolbox, uh, measuring and weighing stuff in another one, uh, you know, maybe like airlocks and tubing stuff like that in a third, but the idea is to get your stuff organized, keep it close at hand and make sure that it always goes back to the same place every time you use it so that you know where it's going to be when you need it. That's it. It's just that simple. That's the quick tip.
0: Well, and I would say the other thing is, I mean, I have a lot of little either, you know, container units, you know, like designed to go on a shelf or something like that, or little toolboxes. So I know everybody always says, you know, hey, go buy like the best quality tools that you can, right? Um, but these aren't tools that are being used for, you know, everyday rugged tasks, you know, type of things. I mean, this is like, I'm cleaning kegs. I need a screwdriver. This is, you know, hey, I need a, an extra set of pliers. I just go over to like Harbor Freight and go buy like yeah the cheap horrible Chinese made tools because I'm not going to try and use those in, to the end of time and it's okay a a buck screwdriver works just fine.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, you're not using it for anything uh, mission critical and you're not using it that often. Uh, get something good enough that'll do.
0: Yep, and besides, you'll have extras on hand so you can always sh- go reach for the next box
1: if you have to. That's right. That's right. Okay, so you've got the something other than beer this time around.
0: Yes, I do. And I just want to throw out real quick, you guys know that I love me my uh, science fiction. I love me my books. And I just recently discovered a series of books, a trilogy really, and I think it is actually just a trilogy. It's not like a, the modern day trilogy that keeps going and going and going. Uh, three books in a series called The Brilliance Series by Marcus Sakey. And started in 2013 and just wrapped up last year. And these are three books that talk about what if in the world we lived in, around 1980, it turned out that 1% of the population, well, developed sort of certain powers. And these aren't like powers like, you know, X-Men mutant type powers, but these are kind of something more along along the lines of, you know, somebody who's highly observant and can become a strategic uh, master or they can predict you know, how people are moving or they can read people very well. You know, that sort of thing. And what happens in a world that starts to be unbalanced by that? And how does that roll up into the government and the sort of evolutionary race between the brilliance, as they're called in this world, and the normies? And, you know, what happens and will civil war happen? Or, you know, how will the universe resolve itself? So this series is actually good enough that I got the first book, and I finished it, it's like 400 pages, I finished the 400-page book in just under a day. That's the the Brilliant series by Marcus Aiki, sort of a real-time alternate, alternate history uh, with genetic evolution taking us into strange places that we hadn't predicted. Wow,
1: man. You know, I used to be so into science fiction books and usually had two or three going at a time. Uh, maybe I'll have to try and get back into that. Because I just don't have enough other things to do.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, but I'll tell you, this was good. And this was a good recharge. I really needed it. So there you go. And you know what that is? That's the end of the show.
1: That's right. It's time to wrap this baby up. We want to thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We are on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I'm on a whole bunch of different beer forums out there, including the AHA Forum. And Drew hangs out at the uh, homebrewing subreddit and the Slacker homebrewing channel. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or experiments, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com, and he's Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. So, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew
0: wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.